It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tishik Michal Martin believes there's no appetite to cut tax-free inheritance limits, saying his government is focused on a range of issues. We're focused on a whole range of, of issues that sure. matter to people. Uh, the cost of living being the number one issue. Russian forces are pushed back in parts of Ukraine during a lightning advance, but is this a major turning point in the war? And as Britain continues to mourn the late Queen Elizabeth, can King Charles hold the United Kingdom together? Later, what needs to be done for autism classes? Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, Gardaí say a criminal investigation is underway into the circumstances surrounding the deaths of two children in a car fire in County West Meath last Friday. A memorial has been set up outside St. Cremens National School to remember the two children, two-year-old Mikey Danani and five-year-old Thelma Danani, who died in the fire last Friday. Gardaí say the deaths are being treated as suspicious. The children's mother remains in hospital. Well, in other news today, there should be a substantial reduction in the amount of money that parents can leave to their children tax-free. A government-appointed commission on taxation has recommended. However, today the Taoiseach said there was no appetite to cut tax-free limits. To discuss this and other issues, I'm joined by our political correspondent, uh, Gavin Riley, Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney, Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy, and John Lowe from moneydoctors.ie. Um, to come to you first, Gavin, you were there today at the Fianna Fáil Think-In. It is that time of the year again. Uh, we had Fine Gael's on Friday, Fianna Fáil's today, as I say. The final meetings before the budget and indeed that big switch up in power. What are the party's priorities? What are they putting out there as the big issues certainly that they want to focus on? It's an interesting question, particularly when you come to the Fianna Fáil meeting, because if you ask what are the party's priorities, well, what are the priorities of the people in the room? And actually, I thought what was very striking about the Fianna Fáil thinking is that the two sets of members, the ministers and everyone else, are going in with completely different sets of priorities. I think it was very interesting that you saw all the ministers lining up and those who did speak to the media were very focused on the budget that's going to be in 15 days' time, the huge challenges that the country has to face with the cost of living and the situation in health, housing and a whole load of other areas, and that that is their priority. That's what needs to be worked on. They saw the thinking as an opportunity for other TDs to offer their insights and potential suggestions to them. Everyone else who doesn't hold a ministry, who doesn't have that much of a role in drafting up the budget, saw these meetings with some legitimacy, because this is what they tend to do every other year, as an opportunity to discuss the affairs of the party, as well as the affairs of the government. To and vent. 
to, well, to vent, as has happened last year, famously Micheál Martin allowed a venting session in the sleeve Russell 12 months ago and it seemed to diffuse tensions within the party quite a bit. There was no opportunity to do that this time around. In fact, the schedule was designed so that there was 75 minutes allotted for a speech by Brian Cody, the former Kilkenny hurling manager, but no time allotted mm. to discussing the affairs of the party. And it's very interesting that there's a split. It means that you can't really answer the question as to what is the party putting forward because the ministers are very concerned about the budget and how you draft the budget. A lot of the other members are concerned about, well, what about the party that's left behind? Now, you can say with some legitimacy that Micheál Martin unusually has had to spend so much of his time in government running a government and with no time to run a party because of the issues that he's had in his plate. But nonetheless, there was a lot of concern among members that there was no time to discuss them themselves. And that is always part of what a, a political party parliamentary meeting is supposed to do. OK, let's get on to one of the, the key talking points today and that of the thorny issue around inheritance tax, Gavin. Uh, the Taoiseach pouring cold water over any proposals to lower the threshold on that tax, essentially for people to be paying more money if they inherit assets from their late parents. Notably without having seen the full context of the recommendation, but this of course is going to be political anathema to most parties, I suspect across the spectrum. You can hear from Mary and Matt in just a moment and see why. But there's been an argument for several years now that the government actively needs to raise the threshold at which inheritance tax kicks in. Uh, specifically because a lot of people with fairly ordinary, unremarkable family homes in Dublin or adjoining counties or in other cities would find themselves having to pay inheritance tax mm. if you are, for example, a single child, a sole child, and you inherit your parents' home. And most uh, political parties would think that it's unfair that in sad circumstances where an only child is inheriting the family home in very sad circumstances, that you'd suddenly be left with a tax bill for doing exactly that. So progressively, they've been trying to increase that threshold over time. What the Commission for Taxation is likely to say when we see its report on Wednesday is that actually it should be paired back, that there should be no special treatment specifically for children relative to mm -hmm. other members of your nuclear family or onwards. And how exactly politicians deal with the substance of that report when it comes out. We'll wait and see. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it, um, Mary, on this matter? Because if we take the background on the Commission on Taxation and Welfare, we had Minister Pascal Donoghue announcing its establishment in April of last year. It was a government-appointed body that suggested it. So what does the government do with those proposals? Is it a case of just kicking it down the road for another 10 to 15 years? Because clearly, as the Taoiseach said, there's no political appetite for it. Well, I think the, the Commission put forward their report and it is up to government to assess then uh, the viability of the various options uh, within that. Uh, and I haven't seen the, the context or, or haven't read the context of the report. But the fact is that when a, a, for an asset like a family home is inherited by the children of the, of the parents of that, the purchase of that family home was done by money on which tax has already been paid. Stamp duty was paid when that, that home was purchased, property tax was paid. Uh, and over the year, and, and in many instances, particularly now, perhaps it was paid at the interest rate on that mortgage was paid at 19% as it was in, in the early 80s. So you were talking about an asset being passed on and now another layer of taxation so going you're on saying to that. It's not a number of years ago, it was over 500,000 yep. yep. was the threshold. We're now down 207,000 on that okay. and increased it okay, by 11%. So, 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 so what's the recommendation that we're likely to get on that, which is to lower that threshold so that people would pay more tax? You believe it's simply not viable? I don't think it's viable, given the, the rate of, of the, and the value okay. of properties, uh, <clears throat> the fact that at, at this moment in okay. time, we're about putting money back into people's pockets, not stripping out more. And there's a very small cohort that this would affect. 
the uh, income to the state is not sure. worth the okay. hardship that it would cause. I just want to get the perspective of the opposition on this. Uh, McCarthy, from a Sinn Féin point of view, <coughs> we're hearing Fine Gael saying a change to this would be completely unfair. Do you agree? I have to say I'm a little bit cynical that this element of the Commission on Taxation was re released leaked to the media early for the government parties who received the report to be able to say, well, actually, we're, we're opposed to this. And I have to say, um, and I speak to lots what, of people on a, on, a, on a daily basis. Well, I think I'm, I'm saying I'm cynical, um, is what I'm saying. I believe that... Um, Sorry um, about the report itself or no, just about, about this the particular, about the, this this particular, particular element aspect of it. this report um, was leaked um, in advance um, during the... Um, the because it's good news for government to be able to stand up and say there's no way we would impose that on people. I think it's good news for the government to be able to talk about this issue as opposed to the actual issues that are facing workers and families in the here and now. Because as I say, I speak to lots of people on a daily basis. Inheritance tax, okay, so I'm not sure, is you, it has you, ever been raised with me you, by a constituent. Okay, um, tell, what, tell, us, tell us Sinn Féin's view on it and around the issue of inheritance tax. Um, your colleagues on opposition benches would yeah. say, you know what, the threshold does need to be lowered. We need that money for public services. What would Sinn Féin say? Like every political party and every government, you have to make choices. So you have to decide on an annual basis what you would set out. So our um, position is that inheritance tax, that limit for parents to um, to, to, to leave tax-free, um, and it's not just property, it's money, it's you know other other valuables, should be set at around 300,000. So we don't support the um, substantial proposals that the Commission on Taxation are making. And the reason why... I don't why think they've given a figure on it, Matt, just to be clear on that. They've just said... They've said no, and the, yes. So we haven't, well, we, we haven't seen the report. The only people who have actually seen the report are the government and, and whatever journalists okay, so happen to get their hands at, on. Just, it. just to clarify for, for people, it's currently at a, a threshold of three hundred and thirty-five thousand euro. After which time you must pay tax at thirty-three percent on the remainder. What would Sinn Féin say? So, we, as I say, on our annual um, pre-budget submissions, we have set the rate at three hundred thousand because on an annual basis, and we'll be publishing our okay, alternative so pay budget tax sooner. this this year a little bit a little bit sooner. But let's bear okay. in mind a couple of things: if somebody is leaving their home to a child who is living in the home and intends to stay living there, they pay no tax whatsoever, and that's only right um, in terms of a, fam um, a family home. Um, if somebody is um, 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 has inheritance um, to multiple children. Mm -hmm. you know, so you're talking in, in some instances if someone has four children, for example, and they're dividing their estate equally, that's 1.2 million oh, euro that can be divided equally. There is no other sum of money, and let's be clear about this, that people can earn for which they pay no tax up until that um, level. And it's right because inheritance is different, but there is um, okay. a, a need to ensure that our society operates on an equal basis. And that equal basis needs to be on the assurance that um, those who can afford um, and those who have assets and right. pay a tax as opposed to consistently targeting ordinary workers and families. John, um, it certainly is a contentious issue around inheritance tax. Uh, how, how big a worry is it for families or when it's coming to this point in life that parents are deciding and decisions are being made around inheritance? How do, how do they manage this? And are they all looking essentially to avoid well, tax you know, for a, their a, offspring? There's a delicate uh, balancing act that the government have to do. There's an awful lot of people in this country who don't have uh, enough 
enough money to pay the electric bill. Now, I, I'm not saying that, you know, 2009, we had the highest uh, rate, which was uh, already alluded to, 542,000. Three years later, it went down to 225,000. And by the way, when it was 542,000, the tax rate was 22%. You could buy an awful lot of property for 542,000, uh, you know, 14 years ago, 13 years ago. Um, I, I think it is a very delicate balance because inheritance, um, and I, I would actually agree with Michal Martin, there are greater priorities. At the same time, um, there are lots of people who've made uh, substantial money from hard work, from, from their businesses, and I, I also think that they should not be penalised uh, simply because, uh, as said earlier, the tax has been paid already on these properties. But uh, I do think it's a very, very delicate balancing act. Yeah, uh, on this point, though, and we certainly heard it from the Labour Party today, who've taken, you know, a strong stance on it, you know, in a high-tax economy, you get excellent childcare, healthcare, you get what you pay for. If we are not willing to tax people, and they also say... Um, uh, and interesting to play this one out, that, you know, inheritance is a privilege. If you do inherit something, it is a, it is a privilege that you're afforded. Um, would you agree that it is a privilege and that that taxed money can go towards things that we desperately need to improve in this country, Mary? I think that the, the money that a family gathers over their lifetime and parents gather over their lifetime and, and the assets... And remember, we're also including and, and under consideration uh, as part of the proposal in this includes family farms and, and aspects like that, apparently, as I say, I haven't seen it myself. But in that, families do that with the security of holding on mm -hmm. uh, or passing that on for the security of their children. So you, d you don't believe it's a privilege? So I don't think that it's a privilege because it is, it is assets that parents have, have already paid tax on on a number of occasions. We are now, and there is that, that if it is in excess of 330,000 now, um, there is tax paid on it, whatever is above that. Uh, so it is reasonable. We're, we're talking about people who perhaps a generation who need this for the deposit on property, for securing, for securing their own pensions, their own futures. Mm -hmm. um, so it, we are talking about, uh, about um, something yeah, that taxes I guess I'm just already thinking paid of that, that bigger picture, times. and we keep hearing about it, and we are hearing there's going to be action from government in the budget on issues around, you know, uh, a childcare for one being a very important issue, Matt, and that really, unless you have that tax model in place, that you're not going to get that equality countrywide that will allow for working families that you're talking about get back to work and the likes of childcare to be paid for. Exactly, and if we're going to ad address issues with our housing system, you know, lots, lots of parts of our economy work well, but lots of parts are also dysfunctional. And part of that is because we have a narrow tax base and oftentimes government's response is to heap additional taxes on those people who are working in the here and now and who are absolutely fleeced, not only with um, income tax, but also with um, stealth charges, whether uh, um, that, that be property tax or other cell charges that take no account of people's ability to pay. And yet when there's a proposal put on the table that actually suggests that those people who have assets that aren't actually, uh, the, 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 the assets aren't contributing to the economy in the here and now, that we can't even look at that. What about the family that. home argument? I mean, we've heard and it a few times. Everyone has huge sympathy for, um, for that. And as I say, you know, the... But pay, but pay more tax on it. Well, this is the, the reality. In the here and now, most people who are work, working today, you know, working young families, watch it. The thoughts of owning their own home 
would be the absolute limit of their ambition because of the failure to adequately address the housing crisis that we have. Yeah. They're looking and they're thinking this is a completely abstract conversation that we're talking about yeah. assets into the hundreds of thousands of euros when they okay. have no assets at all. Yeah. And as John just, says, they yeah. can't afford to meet the bills in the here and now. Just make one observation about the political banana skin that this might be. We refer to it as a balancing act and you have to be strike a delicate balance between making sure the state has enough revenue but also not penalising people at a traumatic time. Mm -hmm. The one thing we don't know about the report from the Commission on Taxation is whether it has made all these recommendations purely in isolation because it's just tried to, to decide on the merits of one measure over another or whether it's trying to do all these things in the round, whether it says you can raise taxation through this measure because it means you can then relax something somewhere else. If it turns out that that's what it's done, if it's tried to look at all these things in the round, if it's almost trying to, to put forward an entirely redesigned system rather than individual measures, then if politicians decide they're not going to pursue this measure, it means they're not going to be able to do something else that the Commission finds to be nice or the Commission finds to be popular. So if the Commission decided that it wanted to completely slash the higher um, tax band or the higher tax cut-off, for example, you might not be able to afford to do that if you're going to decide to forego sure. tax that it's saying you I should mean, get in other places. I mean, essentially here, uh, the, politically, they want to pick and choose what they, what they take from that report. Is it, though, a terrible time like for a report like this to come out at a, a principled recommendation here, mm. well, and we haven't seen the entire report, to increase inheritance tax substantially, uh, but when the cost of living is so flated, uh, inflated and people are really feeling that they have to fork out for everything else right now, that this is not the time the government will see it for a principled position on this one? I think, Claire, actually, the, one of the main problems here is that 70% of this country don't have a will. So whatever about inheritance, they're just leaving it there until they die, and then suddenly all kind of hell breaks loose. People, um, as I say, of that 70%, 99% of them are pretty um, straightforward um, kind of estates, estates what you own, so one house, uh, a couple of accounts, your PC password, all those kind of things. And yet they, they haven't actually, um, you know, 70% of this country haven't got a will. And it's, it's really the essential thing that I think that people should, uh, whether you're young or old, once you have children, once you have 25,000 in assets, you should have a will. And focus in on that. And on that, can such tax liabilities that we're talking about, like the inheritance tax, be avoided by putting agreements and policies in place while the parent is still well, alive. I mean, apart from the 335,000, you can give 32,500 to your grandchildren, to your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your nephew, your niece, and you can give 16,250 euros to the third category, which is me and all of you. So, I mean, we, we, we can, for, that's the third category, which is non-family, basically. But so if you had a rake of brothers and sisters or nephews and nieces, you can give them the 32,500 and not just your children, 335,000. OK, well, uh, thanks for that, John, for that advice and bringing us through all those. And I'm surprised at that number about the 70% not having made a will. Um, that's for another night. But my thanks to Gavin and to John. Matt and Mary are staying with me. Coming up next, what more needs to be done for autism classes in Ireland? Stay with us. Welcome back. Ukrainian forces have reclaimed large swathes of land from Russian occupying forces in a lightning weekend offensive, which has boosted morale in Kyiv and raised questions at home for President Putin. Well, earlier I spoke to news correspondent Julia Chapman, who's in Kyiv, about the latest dramatic developments in this war. 
The war in Ukraine certainly seems to be entering a new phase with Ukrainian officials uh, saying they have retaken some 3,000 square kilometers of territory in the Kharkiv region, which has been under Russian control for many months now. Towns and cities, including key logistical hubs that the Russians have been using to bring in supplies from Russia in the north down into the Donbass region, they now appear to be cut off from that crucial supply and logistics link. So this is not just a territorial gain for Ukraine. It's also a really key strategic victory as well. Uh, they've also announced some gains in the south, in the Kherson region. About 500 square kilometers, they say, have been retaken. And it was in the south where Ukraine signaled that it was going to be launching this counteroffensive about 10 days ago. Uh, then we started seeing most of the efforts actually being concentrated in the northeast, in the Kharkiv region. Uh, meaning that the Russians appeared to have been taken by surprise. They had moved their troops south to reinforce positions there, allowing them to be uh, taken advantage of in the northeast. Uh, Ukraine making very rapid gains over a series of days, uh, much more quickly than many analysts would have predicted. Uh, we have seen some retaliation carried out by Russia, carrying out airstrikes against the Kharkiv region, the city of Kharkiv itself, uh, over the last couple of days, taking aim at critical infrastructure and bringing power outages and water shortages to the uh, area of the Kharkiv region and some of its neighbors. Uh, but Ukrainians saying that uh, they are going to be uh, forcing uh, for them, their forces for, further forward to the east. They're going to be trying to consolidate the gains that they have made in the Kharkiv region, with the defense minister insisting uh, that they wouldn't overstretch themselves and would focus on defending the territory that they have managed to retake. So, Julia, what is the the view then in Moscow? Are they doubling down on this so-called special operation, as they've been calling uh, it? Or is there growing pressure now on Vladimir Putin uh, to explain the losses? There do certainly seem to be a few cracks uh, in the narrative that Russia has been putting forward to its people over the last few months since it launched the invasion on February 24th in what it calls a special military operation. For the first time, really, we're starting to see some criticism making its way onto state television, into the newspapers. One newspaper uh, in Moscow today saying that the enemy was underestimated. Other voices on television saying that Russia will not win the war using the methods uh, that it is using at the moment. Uh, really unusual signs of dissenting voices uh, in mainstream media in Russia. There are also officials that have been criticizing the Kremlin, including the strongman leader Ramzan Kadyrov in Chechnya, uh, saying that mistakes have been made. What's really interesting is that analysts say because of the speed of the counteroffensive that Ukraine has conducted, there wasn't really time for the Kremlin to get its narrative prepared, and that allowed for uh, some criticism to sneak through. Uh, we've even heard some uh, admissions uh, from officials in eastern Ukraine, uh, Russian-imposed officials in the areas where the Russians had control, uh, saying that the Russians were outnumbered eight to one in the Kharkiv region. So some really stark admissions. Now, uh, pressure potentially building on the Kremlin, but of course, as uh, the past has shown us, they are always very good at trying to get that under control once again. Okay, Julia Chapman in Kyiv for us tonight. Thank you for that update.
Well, last June, Minister for Special Education and Inclusion, Josepha Madigan, publicly named four Dublin schools for failing to engage with her department on the opening of classrooms for children with additional educational needs. But resources in schools remains one of the biggest concerns for parents. Joining me now to discuss this is parent Mark Carmody. Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney is still with me, as is Sinn Féin TD Matt Carthy. And via Skype tonight, I'm joined by teacher and columnist Jennifer Horgan and CEO of As I Am, Adam Harris. Um, we asked Minister Josepha Madigan to join us here in studio tonight on this issue, but she was unavailable. Um, well, on the matter, I want to come to Jennifer first. Jennifer, you've written on this um, specifically in the examiner. And going back to that point that Minister Madigan was making a clear point of calling out several schools for not having classes for children with additional needs as they were heading back to school in in It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. September. You've had parents coming to you since, and their return to school has been fraught with challenges. What have they been saying to you? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, Claire, I, they've been saying really that I suppose it's not just a matter of 
opening a classroom, um, it's actually what happens then. And I think there's a fear among um, anyone in education that Joseph Madigan's focus in the media has just been on, you know, calling out schools and getting these classes open. And um, she's been aware for a long time, you know, that there's a there's a, a paucity of classes, particularly in certain parts of, let's say, Dublin and Cork. Um, that's been the case for a very long time. So it just, I think it felt a little bit like a publicity stunt um, that these four schools were being named. Um, you know, it's it's a long process actually opening a special classroom and making sure that your staff are trained appropriately. Um, and I think, you know, these parents certainly had an awful experience, um, didn't feel their schools were, were appropriately equipped and also felt that there was no straightforward complaints procedure. So um, that's a whole other story, I think. Um, um, just on this, I just want to bring in our panel here and talk to, um, to Mark on this. Mark, you have two sons with autism, John and Neil, who are five and nine. Um, tell us about how they're faring in school. What setup have they got and how do you feel it's going for them? Yeah, I suppose, uh, first of all, Claire, thank you for having me on. Uh, I suppose both boys would be severely autistic. Neil is nine, John is five. So I suppose we've seen, like, one got services, one didn't. But in the educational sector, uh, like, what, what's coming from Leinster House and what's happening on the ground are two different worlds. OK, explain and, that yeah, for us, exactly. if you will. So, like, we, we, we've all heard about the therapists that are going to arrive, but they're not there yet. So as I speak tonight... Uh, I spoke with the principal about two hours ago. Like, there is no therapist. She doesn't know one thing that's going to happen. So that's very disappointing for us to actually hear that because I suppose the starting point here has to be what the Ombudsman for Children said last June, that there's discrimination towards these kids when they don't receive services. And something that you don't hear very often is that there's permanent damage being done when they don't get the services. And I suppose without being, you know, using loaded language, they're not cattle. These are real children that just can't be herded into a classroom uh, under circumstances where they're not getting the proper therapist. So right now, I would say in, in South Tipperary, we're in the worst area in the country. The vacancies are shocking. Even um, I, I just got statistics from a parliamentary question mm. of two days ago. There's nearly 18,000 children in this country waiting for the first phone call from the HSE. I'm not even talking about an appointment. They haven't even got the, the very first contact from their local disability services team. That's heading up towards 20,000 by Christmas. And that's before children even enter the education before system. Before they even enter, before someone even asks, well, do you need OT, physio, speech and language, anything? So before we even get into the complicated aspects, like children are being, and it has to be called out, it is discrimination and somebody has to call that out uh, and that's what I'm doing tonight. I just um, want to ask Mary, uh, Siri Carney, about that. Mary, Mary you're hearing um, what Mark has to say. He's calling it discrimination. It's not just him and, and hundreds and thousands of parents calling it discrimination. We have the Ombudsman for Children highlighting it in his annual report about this situation. And we're hearing, before they even get to school, before we even talk about the challenges of the education, system that 18,000 children are waiting to be assessed to be to be to actually be seen by disability services in their area is that right uh, well it's not right and it shouldn't it absolutely shouldn't be the case that's that that and and the matter should be addressed I, I sit on two uh, joint directors committees the the uh, Children's Committee and the Disability Matters Committee and in, in both we have had the HSE in to inquire into and to dig down deep into finding 
why aren't the services there? And, and there why? Is, What's happening? Th- there, the, there, is, there, there are vacancies across the entire HSC in the provision of these services. So that is a matter that Anne Rabbit has been heading up, has been addressing. We have addressed it urgently and, and, and calling out to say so, what is the recruitment? The recruitment process of the HSC mitigates against at times filling of those places. So the this panel is, system this as far as you're concerned yeah. and in terms of the answers you've received, you believe this is simply down to a, a recruitment issue around occupational therapists and special therapists that are required for children so in need of help in the community before we even getting, get on to the school setting. That's the issue there, you say. I, I, I think that there is a review of, of how we do things needs to happen, that assessment of needs needs to, to, to happen. And I think that move this summer, there was the announcement to ensure that the, the services are located in the schools. And Rabbit only recently made that decision and we very much welcome okay. that decision. Look, I want to bring Adam Harris in on that because some would say about, you know, pulling services to schools, that essentially you're taking them from somewhere else. And from what, what from what people are telling you, Adam, families are telling you because they're reaching out, obviously, um, looking for the supports that they feel they're not getting um, at ground level. What what are the main, I suppose, the, the, the big issues that families are facing right now? So, so I suppose at the start of the summer, we would have been experiencing what I think is fair to call a preventable crisis. And that crisis came from the fact there simply was not enough school places for autistic young people. And I think it's important when we talk about places, and I think it's really at the heart of this discussion, we're not just talking about classrooms with chairs, we're talking about appropriate places that meets the needs of the child. And in some cases in their current system, that means a special school placement. In some cases, it means a special class placement. In some cases, it means a child in mainstream, but with the access to support such as SNA or indeed such as therapeutic supports where they're required. I think what's welcome over the course of the summer is that we've seen emergency legislation, which has led to an increase in places opening up across the country. But what is of concern is it hasn't fully negated the problem yet. As recently as last week, we continued to hear from families through our autism information line who still had not secured a school place. We know many of the people who didn't have any school place at the start of the summer now have a place, but will have to continue to wait till October or November in order to access that place. And of course, every day uh, is really an impact on the right of a child to access their education. Adam, but critically as well, can I ask you, Adam, what Minister Josepha Madigan has said about that? Because she said, you know, essentially that she's relentless in her pursuit of finding those school places for those children. You're saying, as of the end of August, a hundred children did not know if they would be going to school. And I think what's at the heart of this discussion is data. The reality is we've already heard about the assessment delays, which means many children are invisible in our system. But in the 267 cases we documented at the start of the summer, many of these were children who had a school place, but the school place didn't align with the recommendation in their psychological report. So you had a child sitting in mainstream, maybe not able to access learning because the recommendation was they should be in a special class place. We have children sometimes traveling 70 kilometers outside of their community, the opposite of inclusion, in order to go to school. So what I think is really important is children who are waiting a school place still this year, that needs to be resolved as a matter of absolute priority. But the crisis that we return to every single summer of children not having enough places, there is simply no reason for that to ha- ever happen again. The government now has every possible tool at its disposal it would need to properly plan ahead in advance. So this has to be the last year where there is a crisis. But I think what's much more critical to this as well is school places are not the be all and end all. There is many children who have a school place who aren't able to access learning. They're sitting in classrooms where teachers haven't got the training that they need. They're sitting in classrooms where they're not able to access the SNA support they need. In many 
many cases, they're in an autism class in mainstream school, but they don't have any opportunity to integrate uh, with their mainstream peers. The reality is, as long as we have a grace and favour approach to this issue, we're, it's not going to get resolved. We passed a piece of legislation in 2004. It's 18 years old this year, the Epson Act, which was about creating rights for disabled students in school. That act still hasn't been fully commenced. It's welcome that Minister Madigan is now reviewing that act, but we urgently need to shift to a rights-based model. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, Matt, what Adam has to say about this grace and favour approach that it's like, we, we are providing places for you, you know, I, I, we want to be able to do this. But then when it comes to actually what the provision is like when the child goes into a classroom and whether the education is there that meets their needs and their specific care plan, that's where it falls into trouble. And I think Adam set it out precisely and very concisely in terms of what's wrong with this approach. I just find it astounding that in September, we're again talking about children who are denied their constitutional right to an education, that we are dealing on a consistent basis. And this isn't a problem that just emerges because of recruitment problems within the HSE. Um, as a public representative, I have seen how this has got steadily worse in terms of assessment of needs and then the delivery of services. So what do we need to, so I think Adam's correct. We need to actually put in place, and in, this, in many instances, because the numbers we're talking about are relatively small. So there must be a mechanism within the department to deal with individual families, individual children and their schools and the health services in order to deliver the appropriate um, um, care and support that they need in the here and now. But what we should also commit to, and this needs to happen, is that we actually can assure all those families, because we know by and large who they are, who have children that are going to be needing to um, either um, join primary or post-primary school next September, that they will have assurance as to what... Yeah provision will be in okay. place by December. So, they, so and families should have that assurance. So we shouldn't have. And I think it is entirely unfair that someone like Mark has to come on a programme and essentially um, beg the state to provide what his children oh, right. are constitutionally okay. entitled and, to. And I want to bring you in, Mark, just but, uh, on that point and the uncertainty there when they finish primary school, what's in place for secondary school? Because I know that's something that's been brought up consistently by families who are campaigning for action on this. It must be very frustrating, um, Mark, to, to, to hear, I suppose, all of this being played out. And, and you must have heard it for many years now. I mean, you've got a nine-year-old son and a yeah. five-year-old son. Um, and the situation, has it changed or improved no, for you in that it time? it hasn't. Now, as we said to the Taoiseach two months ago, when we got that 80-minute meeting with him through our 12-year-old daughter who, who sat the junior cert exam, um, we said to him, what you are guilty of is you are not treating this as a crisis. You're not treating it like the house is on fire. Now, I, I, I am very vocal when I say this. The HSE has failed dramatically. They have failed parents across this country. What, what I say to the politicians is you are allowing them to do this. I would compare the HSE to the Garda Síochána in this way. We have an ombudsman for the guards. We have a policing authority for the guards that holds them to mm. account. The HSE are totally unaccountable. Every time I ask a politician, okay. why do we not have those for health? Nobody seems to have that okay, answer. Okay, well, look, Mary, do you have the answer think, to that? I, I, I think that we, we need to reflect on, on, on the fact that a, a special department was created under Josepha Madigan uh, for special education needs. And since she has gone into that role, she has done nothing but 
progress the number of places and the number of classes through the, throughout the country. Uh, at this moment in time, and I got confirmation from that department today, every child has been offered a place as of today. But we've already Some heard about the challenges with October. the places that are being uh, offered. And yes, but, but the first thing is to make sure that there is a place for the child and then to follow their 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 plan, be it their, the, the, the plan arguably, for that child. And I just want to get Jennifer's view on this. Are schools scrambling while those places are there? How are schools managing to, um, to, to, to work with students and to make it, um, to make it a, a good place for them to get an education, a safe and comfortable place for them to get an education. Schools are really struggling, you know, like 95% of schools haven't had an increase in their SNA allocation in the last three years. It's still the same. So when you've got a new school opening, that means they have three year groups with absolutely no SNA support. And um, there's also an issue, I think, here tonight. I don't know if there are any autistic people on the panel, but there's a lack of the autistic voice in all of this. Um, and it's wonderful to have parents speaking out. But there are plenty of autistic people who can who can speak in, in you know, who are really, really insightful. And I've learned a lot listening this week and last week to their ideas about how it should be done. Um, and the, 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 the ultimate point is that it has to be um, a child-based model. It has to be individualized. It cannot be one size fits all. And that's what our current education system is. So we need supports. We need smaller class sizes. Um, and I, I'm just worried that the political spin of having these places is kind of where the conversation is going to end. That's only the beginning. You know, the focus has to be on autistic people speaking and us listening as neurotypical people and not placing our sort of ideas, our expectations on autistic people, because that's where you get the anxiety, the stress, the depression, the self-harm. Um, and, and, you know, services are seeing that across the country. Just clarify there, but there is a special education consultative forum that advises the minister in which other matters that are raised and ideas and, mm. and, and, and matters are, are that that consultative forum is, is consulted. And Adam Harris is one of the people that sits on that forum. Oh, so yeah. having a voice at the table, there, yeah. is, there are voices at the table. Yeah, Mark. I suppose maybe there's often, it's, it's often good to just give a simple example of what's going on. So we'll say Skull Cormac in Tipperary. Um, this year, they have 221 pupils. They've been asked to take eight extra pupils this year. They've now entered the school. No extra staff member with them. Now, these are not like, these are, these are pupils with serious complex needs. Now, we've brought this up with Minister Madigan directly. We've brought this up with the Taoiseach directly. But this is an example of what's going on around the country. So there's eight extra children, all with complex needs. It's debatable whether they all need uh, as, like another staff member individually each. And how many staff members? None. They can't be just squashed into a classroom or just put somewhere in the school. It doesn't work like that. And I often say like to people, uh, our oldest, when he has a meltdown, it would take one staff member with him for maybe two hours after that. The allocation of staff, it, it, it can't be based on a model. And the model that's used mm. in schools right now is called the CERC report. And that report was authored in 1993 and still uses language like handicapped, mentally disabled, mm -hmm. the, the type of language that we got rid of years ago, but that's still used today 
to allocate SNAs right. within schools. OK, um, Adam, I just I want to bring um, you in on this and just around um, the requirements that are there that, as you say, it's more than a school place that's needed. But we keep hearing the government coming back to resources and the lack of resources and needing to get staff in place and the difficulty in finding those staff. Like, what would your organisation say to that, that they may be trying very hard, but it's very hard to fill those roles in schools? Well, I, I think there's a number of pieces to say on that. And just to pick up on Jennifer's comment, as an autistic person myself who spent time in special education and then mainstream education with support, I know the power that can come from having the right support at the right time. And while I know there's been significant increases in resources in recent years on paper, what we have to recognise as well is we now have a much larger autism community due to increased awareness. Perhaps 3.3% of the school-going age population now have an autism diagnosis. It was much, much lower when I was a child. And while you always had to fight to get support, the, the reality is the situation is actually worse than it was 20 years ago on the ground. Everything is a battle. Families that have just come through the battle around getting a school place are now facing a battle around getting school transport to access that school place. Last week, we found that 62% of the families we surveyed were impacted in terms of accessing their school place because transport wasn't in place. So what I think is really important is we need to put a much greater value on the people who work within our system and who do this vital work. And what I, I think is, is important... All right. Absolutely. We, OK, we'll have to leave that um, there for now. But, you know, the issue, as I say, is not going away. It's something that we always receive um, an awful lot of correspondence on. So we will hopefully have Minister Josepha Madigan back on the, on the programme again to discuss this with us. But uh, my thanks to Mark, um, to Jennifer and to Adam. Matt and Mary are staying with me um, because after the break, can King Charles hold the United Kingdom together? Stay with us. Welcome back. Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney and Sinn Féin TD Matt Carthy are still here with me. Now, Britain's King Charles III is set to visit Northern Ireland tomorrow. And just before the programme, I spoke to Professor of Social Policy at University of Ulster, Deirdre Heenan, ahead of that visit. Oh, I think he will receive a very warm welcome. It is important to note how revered the monarchy is in the North, probably more than any region of the UK. The Queen was the embodiment of Britishness and British values. And so he will receive probably, I would imagine, one of the warmest welcomes because people will want to be assured that he is interested, that he understands what's going on, and they will listen very carefully to the message that he delivers tomorrow. And yet this loyalty among loyalists to Queen and to country, that's automatically changing now. So I suppose how they receive King Charles and the change around all of this will be something that they'll also have to, to, to deal with. Well, well, and as you've already said, it's a very unsettling time for unionists at the moment. They feel that they have a number of political setbacks, not least that they have been betrayed, as they would see it by Boris Johnson, around the protocol and the Irish Sea border. So they will want some reassurances that this monarch really believes that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom and that he addresses them as his new king. So I think they will want to take some sucker from this. They will be listening very carefully to the nuances. But uh, the Queen's death comes at a very difficult time for unionists who feel that uh, they are um, being eroded from all sides, as it were. 
Sinn Féin too having to play a particularly delicate game here. Um, Alex Maskey, who's the Speaker of the House, will deliver that message to the new king. What's the symbolism, do you think, involved there? Well, I think it is very important. Um, it's, it would be hard, it would have been hard to imagine that happening a, a short time ago. But I think across the political landscape, most people have commented that Sinn Féin have been very mature in their attitude towards the death of the Queen. They have been respectful. They have talked about her role. And of course, the monarchy divides opinions here. But it is important that political leaders show leadership, show respect to people who have other views and other opinions. So it will be interesting to say the that Alex Maskey is the person who is delivering the message on behalf of Northern Ireland. Uh, interesting too um, that I suppose in essence King Charles is there to uphold Britishness. Can he make this visit without it being a political one? Not really. I mean, I think he will be welcomed. I think people will understand the symbolism of it. And of course, people will say uh, this is not the time to discuss the role of the monarchy. This is not the time to discuss constitutional change. This is the time to show that we can show respect. We can understand how other people feel and we can understand the loss that they feel. But I think the wider constitutional issues will, of course, be discussed it is important to say that when the Irish president went to visit Windsor Castle, he talked about the ties being deeper than ever, that our relationship was stronger than ever. And just last weekend at the British Irish Association in Oxford, it was noted that relationships were at an all-time low in terms of the diplomatic relationships between the British and Irish government. Well, Matt and Mary are still here with me. That was Deirdre Heenan with her view from the North. Matt, um, when it comes to how this all plays out, um, it is a delicate balance, isn't it, for Sinn Féin? I mean, it's a very unsettled period in the North. We have, you know, the breakdown of Stormont. There's nothing in place in terms of um, a power-sharing arrangement. And then we have the new king flying in. Yeah, I think Deirdre put it very well. This is about respect as far as Sinn Féin is concerned. We're Republicans, you know, the... the notion of um, a monarchy is antenomate to us, um, but we recognise that there's a substantial proportion of the population um, of the North that are British and that value the monarchy. So um, in terms of our approach to all of this, we're no less Republican, but we're recognising um, that a lot of people are, you know, are hurting as a result of the death of the, the, the Queen. Um, and this has taken place, you know, whether it's overtly stated or not, into the backdrop of a constitutional conversation that has taken place. And we see it as one of our obligations as United Irelanders to make it very clear to those who have a British identity and who, um, um, who would c consider themselves loyal to the British Crown that there will be a place in a new and united Ireland for them. Um, an interesting one, that it can't be a, a visit that is not... I suppose, inherently political by the fact that, you know, this is the, the British king representing, um, representing those who see themselves as British in the north, Mary. Well, I think we have an opportunity in that both the, the Taoiseach and the president are going to attend the service in the north and are going to attend the funeral. And so I think in that, in respecting the place of the queen and the king, uh, the new king, we are also embracing okay. and including those who, for right. whom this is a great loss. OK, that is all we have time for. Um, our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram, tonight VMTV, from all the late team here, all my panellists. Good night. Take care.
This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 